Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, this is a bonus episode for Historically Thinking, and it's on the subject of higher COVIDication, and specifically reopening of dormitories and colleges in the next month. We can think of this as another of our series of higher education news you can use, or higher education, a guide for the perplexed. With me are Carla Iani. She's a professor in the Department of Art History at Rutgers University, author most recently of Living on Campus, an Architectural History of the American Dormitory. And with us also is Holly Taylor, who's a research bioethicist at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. So you have wrote, uh, gosh, it's almost two months ago, sounds it's like a year ago, um, uh, article, uh, opinion piece in Inside Higher Ed called The Question of Living Spaces. You wrote on June 12th, if you are a college administrator considering opening residence halls, residence halls students in fall 2020, think twice. Has anything occurred since then to make you guys change your mind? Well, um, I'll start and say that as it relates to COVID, um, no. I think that it's still the case that the, excuse me, the population of people that we're talking about, young adults, are at low risk of having severe disease. Uh, We know more about that now. We know that this age group is more likely to have mild symptoms and they're their personal risk of death is quite low. On the other hand, we have many examples now um, since we first wrote the um, commentary that there have been outbreaks among college-age students who have been at large gatherings. There are examples of uh, athletes, college athletes, returning to campus for training and uh, there being outbreaks of COVID. So I think we have evidence that transmission will absolutely happen. Um, In the latter case, right, I'm sure that the teams are being as careful perhaps and as thoughtful as they can be about keeping distance and wearing masks. But, you know, football, for example, is a, a sport where you're likely to come in close contact. So I think we we know that transmission will happen. So uh, can I ask, and this is um, something that's been perplexing me for a while, what do we know now in the last two months about rates of transmission amongst different age groups? Do we have an understanding of that's that? That's a really or good question. Yeah. So, so, so it's a great question. And I think when you say rates of transmission, the challenge here is that many of us may have asymptomatic courses of infection, right? Mm -hmm. And that may be even more true among these younger age groups, right? In part because they're young, 
in part because their immune systems are healthier, et cetera. So it's very hard to tell what a rate of transmission might be when you don't have a disease where, you know, for polio, for example, right, there's clear sequelae. You know that someone has been infected and is suffering from the consequences. In this case, we don't have a lot of data about variation in rates of transmission among groups. What we do know is that the virus is very effectively transmitted uh, while talking, for example. So talking in close contact is one of the quote unquote best ways to become infected. So we know a bit more about high risk behaviors or activities but I don't think we have a, a good sense in part because we're relatively early in the pandemic about the likelihood of transmission and or whether rates of transmission vary depending on different age groups. It, it's clear that there are some um, invasive procedures that physicians and people who are at the front lines are engaged in that we know are highly likely to uh, transmit the virus. But again, we don't know whether there are factors that make that more or less likely. Now, part of the story that you're telling and your, your opinion is based upon Carla's expertise with dormitories um, and that dormitories were, have been designed in, in the United States since very, very early on to increase social contact. And therefore, that means they increase, they are almost designed to spread infections. Could you explain that a little bit, Carla? Sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, many colleges and universities value the so-called collegiate experience. So we might think of that as living in a residence hall, meeting new people, joining a club. Um, all of the things that take place outside the classroom are very important to the experience of being a college student and going away to college, leaving home and going to live in the residence hall. For Americans, not so much in other countries, but for Americans, that's a, a rite of passage. It's a, a moment when um, teenagers become adults. They become more important. And architects designing residence halls try to find a way to make the residence hall a place where people would mix and mingle. And that makes the spread of infection very likely to happen in those spaces. So, yes, there's an architectural component here as well. And um, how, how does that work, though? I mean, um, going back to my um, education, um, I went to a college which had a very traditional, like you, you and I will probably talk about this in a future conversation, um, traditional long, long hallways, some of those sort of dormitories. Um, sure. And, yes. And, and, and then, and then there were the hip, new, air-conditioned apartment suites, which everyone wanted. Um, did you go to Rutgers? <laughs> I did not. I did not. No, um, many but that was have this, this pattern. Yeah, they have that pattern. There's a there's a very bright, abrupt uh, drop, a jump between say 1918 and 1990. There was nothing much in between. Um, you know, and my dad, when he went uh, surrounded by as a 16 year old, surrounded by people in the GI Bill, he, they were hot bunking. I think eight to a room uh, because it was, it was just like a submarine in 1950. You know, um, 
Um, well, so I always I, say about the GIs that they were so lucky to be alive. They didn't complain about how terrible the, the housing conditions they were. They thought it was fantastic. No one was shooting at them and there was a roof. Exactly uh, right. My father exactly. always said, yeah. So, um, but this is, these, these reflect, dormitories always reflect sort of cultural and social choices going on outside. And I was wondering um, how, you make an interesting point too about the, like, so these modern apartments are like nursing homes. Could you explain yeah, that a little well, bit? Yeah, so to, to, to take a step back and talk about the traditional double-loaded corridor, that means yeah. a long corridor with double rooms on both sides and a, um, a group bathroom at the end of the hall and there these can be um, all male or all female or vary by floor or they can be entirely co-educational um there's usually a lounge in taller buildings there's an elevator students coming and going in the hallway sometimes they sit in the hallway and have parties in the hallway um every, if every student has a roommate there's um obviously a chance for infection there. What a lot of colleges have done is shift those double rooms into single rooms. Um, but those long corridors are really great for making friends. They're noisy, they're loud, they're, um, it's easy for spontaneous meetings to occur. And all of that is bad for the, for the spread of infection. So that's, that's one, of the answer. Um, and then, so then to jump ahead a little bit, suppose this, you have a, your university has a really wide range of housing types. Maybe you decide not to use the traditional corridors at all, and you're only going to use the apartments. Um, that's okay, but you still have to think about the fact that you're going to be going in and out of each other's apartments nurses and nurses' aides were going in and out of uh, private rooms with their own bathrooms in nursing homes. So the having people alone in their rooms and having uh, people who have their own bathrooms is okay, but it's not going to completely stop the spread of infection. College students are very gregarious. They're, they're not going to stop having parties, not going to stop drinking, they're not going to stop having sex as much as we may tell them not to. I think the real issue is that this is a time of their lives when they tend to take a lot of risks. And I don't see that happening. In, uh, I don't see it changing in the fall. Yeah, th that was another thing that I was thinking of. And I've been talking this with friends who are at a, at a <clears throat> excuse me, a wide variety of different types of colleges. Um, there are numerous other factors of campus life that ac increase the infection rate when compared to populations off campus. Um, I don't know if this is true or not, but my sense is, is that undergraduates would tend to talk to more people than people just out in the in, in, in everyday life who are a little bit older than them. Um, and there are other things. There's also, when you put together a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds together, they do encourage each other to take risks. It's just a fact. It is, I know. Well, group houses off campus are going to turn out to be a, a disease well because yeah. then they're really not under any they're really not under the control of the residence life program on the campus and that's worrisome too because those people are friends with students who are living on campus and then and, I mean some universities have told the students they need to stay on campus until Thanksgiving and not and then go home after Thanksgiving and the exams will be virtual um, I'm quite certain that 
And one of the reasons Rutgers decided to go all online, and I'm, you know, thankful for that, is that in a small, dense state like New Jersey, the students go home on the weekends. Mm -hmm. They go home to do laundry, to get a good meal. They go home for every birthday and every bat mitzvah and every, you know, uh, you know, great aunt's birthday party. And so the, the chance that the students who maybe they're misbehaving on campus um, and maybe, as Holly said, it, it, the disease won't be fatal for them, but it could be for their relatives if they go home on the weekends. And then there's also the issue of, of the workers on campus, the cleaning staff, the uh, landscape crews, the staff who do the supervision in residence life. That's all very worrisome. So, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Holly. I was just going to follow up on that. And, and Carla sort of brought the conversation to where I wanted to make sure we get that, you know, as I said, the average 19 year old, if infected, is likely to have a relatively mild experience with the disease. But um, they're just one part of the equation when we're thinking about bringing students back to campus. So as Carla mentioned, right, going home for short periods of time and exposing family members. And in fact, more importantly, I would say the folks who are going to be on campus 24-7 with them that are uh, adults, older adults, um, older than 21, who are facilitating and making it possible for that student body to be on campus you know, if we were sending them all by themselves, uh, we'd be having a slightly different conversation about the potential risks of infection, right? I, I don't think we ought to tolerate uh, any sort of additional risk, um, but um, I think we need to be very thoughtful about who else we're asking to come to campus and take on the burden of being exposed to the disease where their course of disease may be very different than the average 19-year-old. Right. And a lot of those people in, in uh, custodial positions are people of color who have already been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Yeah. And we can expect, I imagine, in, in place, well, places like, I don't know, Charlottesville, Virginia, where the university is um, going to have students on campus, or at least they have a very complex plan, and, and one of the options is for students to come back to campus, and I know that many are as of August 20th. We can probably expect, I mean, it'll be interesting if it doesn't happen, a recurrence of, of co a COVID spike in two weeks later, uh, sometime, say, in mid-September within the Charlottesville community. Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, predictable, right? As you say, the likelihood of bringing on campus a group of individuals who are going to engage with each other, uh, a couple of them are going to bring infection, they're asymptomatic, and spread it to their, you know, dorm mates and others on campus. Um, what I, there are, there are maybe 50 to 100 colleges, and I'm being very generous, out of 2,400, 2,500 higher education four-year higher education institutions in the United States, maybe about 50, which are insulated against financial hardship. And I think that's probably an overestimate. Um, and some of them are not ones that you would think of as being in trouble. Uh, I was talking to someone who's at an institution with 
a $6 billion endowment, and yet they are much more dependent upon, well, specifically upon dormitory, upon housing fees um, than anyone po can possibly realize. And so doing, not having students on campus is a real injury to them. At the same time, as we were discussing before, um, as I was saying before we began recording, um, there must be um, people in legal councils at universities whose heads are really about to explode or light on fire as they consider liability versus uh, real financial hardship and probably the, maybe the, the crippling of the institution for, um, for a decade to come. Um, how do we sort through that? Um, you know, Holly, you're a bioethicist. This is kind of this is kind of a social bioethics of a kind. Well, sure, it's certainly an an ethical. Uh, there are many ethical considerations in making choices about other people's lives, right? So, I guess to say it may not be a bioethics issue, but it's certainly a, a question of ethics in terms of trade-offs that one is making. And I think that, right, I think that you are absolutely correct in that many higher uh, ed institutions are going to be challenged financially. And I think that if they are making decisions informed by their financial concerns, they have to be transparent about those that I, if I was a parent who had a college-aged child who might be expected to return to campus, I would want the university to be very frank with me about what they are weighing in their decision about bringing my child back to campus. And if they said, Holly, it's really about the money. We can't survive without your money. That's a very different that's a different calculus that I might take into consideration about whether I choose to send my child to campus, right? I may say, well, maybe I'll, you know, suggest they go to a community college that's offering online courses for the semester, right? That allows me to make a more informed choice about how I'm going to respond to the choices that you, the institution, are making, and I think that you're absolutely right also to say that a year from now, um, well, two things, right? A year from now, I hope that we have at least treatments for COVID that make some of this calculus um, less, uh, what would I say, but have um, fewer major consequences in terms of uh, disease outcomes and death, right? If we can radically reduce the course of the disease and bring to close to zero the number of deaths, the calculus here is going to be very different. Now, of course, I'd also love for there to be a vaccine. That will also facilitate bringing folks back. But I think to have a, there's going to be a short-term horizon and a long-term horizon. And I don't think that we ought to place the burden of the financial success of higher ed on a very specific group of young adults. I think that's asking too much of them and their families 
in a situation where we're fighting a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you've sort of answered in part the question, uh, but as we tie this up, um, oh, what would you... in terms of liability? Yes, yeah. Right, so, so again, I think that, right, we are to be grossly over whatever, a litigious society, right? I've noticed, so, I've noticed. <laughs> so <laughs> the first child who experiences a, a severe case of COVID and, God forbid, is disabled or dies, one has to imagine that the parents in their grief are going to look for someone responsible, right? Now, that's something that, as you say, the general counsels are struggling with. But again, that's a trade-off. They're saying, right, to be um, gross about it, they're thinking, well, let's see, if we don't open, we might lose X. If one kid dies, we might be sued for X minus Y. So we can afford Y, so we're going to go ahead and open, right? I, that, that seems to me to be a calculation um, that is unacceptable. And, right, what I don't know about is, so this is something I don't know about, so I'm, I'm just speculating, but what about, you know, workers' compensation, for example? If they may also face some liability there in terms of bringing their staff, whether it be janitor or full professor, back to campus. And as a result, that person is, because they are on campus, they are exposed to and get disease. That's yet another liability they need to be thinking about, right? So there are so many factors. Their heads are likely exploding. Um, but if their goal is to minimize transmission, they, they may maximize their financial loss in the short term. And I don't, right, I can't say that they must do one or the other, but I certainly have an opinion about sparing short-term death and disability with the hope that many of these institutions will thrive in the long run. Mm-hmm. Carla, do you want to add anything to that? Um, just one, one comment, which is ordinarily, before the pandemic, um, I used to say that you know semesters were this strange kind of leftover from centuries ago and there really wasn't any real reason for universities to have the semester calendar or even the quarter calendar, um, that there are lots of other ways of organizing time. But since that's what we do have at most universities, there's this unit of time which would take us to the middle of January. I really don't understand why more colleges aren't just taking that unit of time and putting everything online because by January, we'll have more testing, we'll have more contact tracing, maybe we'll have better ways of treating milder cases. It just seems like there is a way to postpone just till January. And that doesn't, to me, seem like um, a sacrifice. And luckily, the administrators at Rutgers agree with me. Um, and unfortunately, we had a bad situation with the football players. Um, but in general, um, 
I agree that these calculations are, are kind of terrifying. Um, so <clears throat> my hope is that people are cautious and students are careful. And that's, that's my hope, you know, looking forward just till the next, next four weeks. Well, my guests have been Carla Yanni and Holly Taylor. Thanks so much for joining us.